0: Hi everyone, Uh, I'm Eugene Goltz. I'm a a professor uh, of political science at Notre Dame and one of the principals of the Notre Dame International Security Center. And I am the, um, I don't know, organizer of this fall's seminar series. Um, So uh, I'll do introductions and and I uh, helped orchestrate the people who are gonna be presenting seminars. The first one is today, but of course, they continue throughout the semester. So before we get started for today, I will flag the next one is um, in three weeks, on September 22nd, uh, uh, Dan Byman, a professor at Georgetown University, uh, will be presenting through Zoom again. Um, and our, you know, our next uh, uh, seminar is gonna be about um, uh, lessons from the reconstruction period for uh, counterinsurgency. Um, and it seems pretty topical these days to be talking about uh, reconstruction uh, given the, um, I don't know, issues convulsing America today, the yeah, uh, protests. So um, I hope you'll all attend that as well, but that's just in the future. Today we're going to get started with a, with a great kickoff uh, seminar um, uh, with uh, Professor Hilde Rastad, um, who's a professor at we talked about this Bjorkness or Bjorkness or something like that it's a Norwegian word she just gave me a thumbs up Uh, Bjorkness College in Oslo so um, as I was telling her earlier uh, we're really interested and excited in her work and we would have probably tried to bring her if we were meeting in person but uh, for once for us it's logistically a little easier to be on Zoom because she's actually in Norway for her it's now the middle of the night. And so um, she is doing a great service to us by um, having the seminar and uh, sharing her wisdom with us and taking our questions. Um, She uh, is a professor of peace and conflict studies there, um, uh, which uh, is a nice connection for um, some of the other programs here at Notre Dame, like the Kroc Institute. But I, I have learned that uh today that they are renaming their department, uh political science and international relations. And um, as we we're gonna learn in the seminar, uh how you name things is actually very important. And uh so uh, I don't know, we can take whatever inference from that, that we that we wish. But uh, uh Dr. Restad got her PhD at the University of Virginia. Uh she was there as a as a Fulbright fellow, and um I don't know, uh, I don't know exactly how this works, but she got her PhD there, which most people who do Fulbright fellowships don't automatically get a PhD. So um, she did something else good with respect to the University of Virginia as well. Um, And uh, she uh, wrote a book, her her first book was published about American exceptionalism, which makes her a particular expert to talk to us today about American exceptionalism and how we should use it to think about uh, American foreign policy. So uh, our typical format, just so the first one of the semester, Dr. Restad is going to present for about 35 minutes, and then we're going to have Q&A. The Q&A, um, if you want to get on the list to ask a question, use the raise hand function within uh, Zoom, uh, which uh, you can get to under the participants tab, for those of you who are not uh, Zoom ninjas. and um, uh, that will create a list and I'll keep the list that I'll call on people to ask questions. When you ask a question, we'll unmute your mic for you. Please turn on your video at that point so that we can have a, a, you know, we can see each other when we're having a questioning back and forth. And as you ask your question, you don't need to turn your mute off as soon as you finish asking the question in case you have a, a little bit of a follow up or something like that, like you can discuss a little bit and then we'll take your, Uh, you'll you'll get muted again when it's time for us to move on to the next questioner. Um, If you are eager to ask a follow-up question on the specific point that's already being discussed, not to jump the queue and start your own new question, but just you want to continue a specific conversation, you can use the Zoom function to give a thumbs up Right? So if you give a thumbs up to the question that's currently being asked, I will see that and I will recognize that as what we used to call a two-finger intervention as opposed to just raising your hand. And, um, and so I will give you a chance to ask your on point, very brief question. But if you have a real big independent question of your own, just raise your hand and wait, in, wait your turn in queue like everybody else and we will have a great conversation uh, and all be enlightened by Dr. Rustad, who is about to start, please.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I am so sad I can't be uh, at Notre Dame today. It's a real bummer, I have to say, but at least I get to meet you guys uh, via Zoom. So I'm gonna try to share my screen, which is always perilous and scary. All right, so. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, American exceptionalism and US foreign policy. Uh, what I'm gonna try to do in these very short 35 minutes is just briefly define my concepts because in, in, in my long career now I'm talking about American exceptionalism. I know that a lot of people have a lot of associations to this concept and so it's, it's helpful to define and talk about it and talk about how I understand it. Before I move on to talk about why I think it's um, helpful to use American exceptionalism as a, a concept or an agenda for research uh, for understanding and analyzing American foreign policy. A- and then I want to end on talking a little bit about why I think it's still highly relevant uh, today. And hopefully, enlist you guys in helping me figure out how to uh, reframe and rewrite the paper that I sent you guys, that I am co writing with uh, Trevor McCriskin at Warwick uh, in England. OK, so when I say American exceptionalism, what do I think about? Um, it's something, first of all, that a lot of Americans seem to have a very strong and, and, and uh, intimate relationship with. The belief in American exceptionalism is widely held by US citizens. Now, this does fluctuate through history. Um, But in general, it's quite a consistent, quite a strong belief held by um, a lot of Americans. In 2018, Gallup found that 78% of Americans claimed that the United States had a unique character that makes it the greatest country in the world. And this belief helps define the parameters of the discursive framework within which U.S. foreign policymaking, both foreign and domestic, takes place. It also has actual foreign policy implications. Um, The same poll that I referenced from Gallup also showed that three quarters of Americans actually believe that the United States has a special responsibility to be a leading nation in world affairs, a view that actually uh, Democrats and Republicans held almost equally, Um, which was interesting to me, although of course they're going to disagree on exactly how this leadership should be executed uh, in practice. Now, it's really important to underscore that when I'm talking about American exceptionalism, I am talking about a belief, I'm talking about a set of ideas that I'm about to define in the next slide. I'm not talking about something that's objectively verifiable. I'm also not talking about something that's that unusual. It's not exceptional to think that you're exceptional, right? Lots of nations in world history have thought that they were exceptional. And if you sort of want to talk about objective, uh, objectively verifiable um, parameters, the United States is obviously not um, exceptional uh, in any particular way. Um, It's if you want to measure if you want to compare the United States to other countries, frequently uh, the United States is found to be sort of not at the top of the statistics, but rather perhaps more in the middle. So it's I just that's not to rag on you Americans. Very very, love you guys, love America, love the United States, but it's important to remember that what I'm talking about is not an objective fact, but a subjective idea about what America is or can be and how that affects um, US foreign policy. All right. So getting to actually defining my terms. Let's see. If I move, is that better for everyone? Okay, I don't think I can move it. All right, so um, American Exceptionalism, as I have written about before, and my co-author has also written about before, um, is made up, it's sort of a, you can call it a national identity or you can call it a narrative. I'm not, it doesn't matter to me really what term you use. The important thing is that it's made up of a set of ideas that you can sort of trace throughout American history, which I've done uh, in previous work. So uh, to make it sort of easy, we can sum it up as three ideas. Um, That the United States, first of all, is not just different, exceptional does not mean different. It means better than. Uh, It means morally superior to um, other nations which, again, has an implication that the United States has a special role to play in world history because of this unique and and superior character. Um, Finally, these two uh, first points that the United States is superior to other countries and has a special role to play ensures that the United States is on a sort of rise and rise trajectory in world history, not a rise and fall trajectory like previous uh, republics in world history. And so although the United States, it's not without its faults, uh, obviously, but it is something special and sort of the best that world history has come up with so far. Um, It's a vanguard of human progress. Uh, It provides a model for the rest of the world, and is able to overcome those parts of itself and its history that is not exceptional yet in order to provide um, an example of a more perfect union and a more perfect world, escaping the laws of history in the process. All right. Now, what feeds into this idea that the United States is not only different, but actually better than superior to other nations. Um, There are several important uh, factors that have gone into this building of the national narrative throughout American history. And obviously, um, as I've written about before, it begins before the United States is even a country with the sort of imagery and um, uh, myths that build around the new world and the promised land, which is quite important for later nation building um, for American nation building, looking back to this these original founders, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, before there was a, a country to found um, and there 's also the idea of the the providential founding, the fact that this little country was able to to win over the, uh, Great Britain um, in what must have been an intervention of god, of you know god 's fate. Um, in order to then found the superior political institutions. That was the best that the world had found or was able to come up with so far in history. And then of course, there are the actual, the political ideology um, that is implicated in the founding, this enlightenment liberalism that we all know and we've all heard of freedom, liberty, laissez-faire, the right to pursue happiness, which is what many people think of as the American dream, that the American system allows you, if only you work hard enough to um, reach happiness, gain, uh, go from rags to riches, if that's what you wanna do, because the United States affords opportunities that no other countries can. Now, why is that important for foreign policy? Well, um, it's important because from the very beginning, there's a very strong idea uh, that the United States is not going to be like other countries. It's not going to be like the corrupt em- uh, empires of the old world. It's going to be a moral- morally superior future great power. right? Um, first of all, the United States doesn't engage in colonialism. It engage in westward expansion. Um, which we can come back to later, but that's a, a very nice way of, of uh, talking about taking over um, other people's territories and kicking out other empires. Um, the United States doesn't have colonies overseas. It merely happens to rescue um, victims of, for instance, the repressive Spanish empire in the war of 1898. It doesn't fight for influence or power. It fights to make the world safe for democracy. It's not the leader of the Western Alliance. It's the leader of the free world. Uh, In fact, the United States at the end of the day represents the end of ideological history. It has the answers to the questions that the rest of the world is asking about how should we organize our societies and how should we interact with each other uh, internationally? All right. So, I sent an article to you guys that maybe some of you read um, that was originally an article uh, by me and my co-author, Trevor McCriskin, because we've both worked a lot on American exceptionalism, which is an answer to a critique that was published in 2015 in Review of International Studies, which is very critical of a lot of people's scholarship on American exceptionalism, including our own. Um, That was five years ago, however. And so we've decided that we would like to reframe our article uh, and focus more on what a constructivist approach to American exceptionalism can offer to the field of IR. So I'm not presenting to you now the article as it is as you read it. I'm trying to present to you how I'm envisioning that we might restructure it. And then elicit you guys' help in getting some feedback on how you think we should frame our argument who we should direct our attention to. Um, So we want to make an argument that we believe that viewing American exceptionalism as I've presented it to you now, i.e. through a constructivist lens, is helpful um, to understand parts of American foreign policy that other theoretical approaches uh, can't really uh, account for. And so one, theory to address and discuss with, of course, is, is critical theory because the article that we were responding to was by a critical theorist. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, of course, another obvious um, uh, counter argument would be to look at, at realist scholars, which I'll talk a little bit about, or other constructivist uh, ways of looking at American foreign policy. Now, um, the critique we were originally responding to came from critical theory. Um, It was a specific article in a British journal, Review of International Studies, arguing that, essentially, uh, if you research and write about American exceptionalism, you reproduce a problematic concept. So you are engaging in a discourse that legitimates what the author saw as uh, highly problematic uh, u.s foreign policy practices like uh, exceptions to international law um, interventions military interventions, etc so in, for, in this perspective, which um, some critical theorists hold, all scholarship on American exceptionalism in u.s foreign policy is dangerous because it legitimates a kind of Uh, American imperialism, in a sense. Now, our response would be that this sort of fundamentally misunderstands what constructivism does. Um, We think it a fairly obvious point that you don't have to condone that which you study. Right. If you study Nazi ideology, it doesn't mean you do it because you condone it. And so that sort of spurred us on to want to make the case for why it is um, helpful to study American exceptionalism uh, when you study US foreign policy. We think, for example, that uh, it adds something to what I call the lament and criticize tradition that you find uh, from a lot of of realist scholars of of various stripes, um, because from I'm not going to rag on Morgenthau seeing as I'm talking to Morgenthau fellows, but there has been a tradition uh, from even before Morgenthau and up to today um, uh, of very important realist scholars and practitioners not really being able to explain uh, and analyze American exceptionalism, but lamenting it and criticizing it and telling Americans that they really should stop believing in this ridiculousness because it leads to tragedy. Uh, in international relations. Doesn't mean um, that we are uh, dismissing the importance of power uh, politics and the fact that the United States has gone from a very small country to a very powerful country and that that is also an important part of the story. Um, but we believe that if you don't account for how American exceptionalism has sort of filtered or uh, affected or influenced how the national interest or interests have been defined throughout US history, then you're missing an important piece of the story. Uh, Because we believe sort of mantra of US foreign policy for a large part of American history has not simply been, we are exceptional, we should rule the world, which is sort of a very simplistic way of looking at it, but rather we are exceptional, the world will want us, to rule them, which um, we can probably agree with realists has been the source of some tragedies in international relations. So we think, with this is not a part that's in the paper that you've read, but something that we could work on, uh, that there's an argument for studying American exceptionalism as a constructivist concept, as a set of ideas that can help explain things that realists don't really explain but lament and criticize. There are also other ways, other constructivist kinds of analyses of, American, uh, of US foreign policy um, that we think we can add something to. So for example, there's also um, some, uh, some researchers use the term liberalism, not as in the IR theory, but as in the political ideology. Um, but I'm not always sure how helpful that concept is. Um, so for instance, um, Lewis Hartz is, is a very popular um, figure to quote and use. But Hartz talks about American political liberalism as the ideology that the, United, that the United States was born in, that it was born liberal without a feudal past. But knowing what we know about American history, that's obviously not true, right? The United States was not only a liberal country, only born out of enlightenment ideals. Um, but the interesting thing is that Hartz actually believed this and that it is such a strong belief in the United States. What Hartz really was doing, I think, was enacting the national identity of American exceptionalism, looking at the United States as exceptional and being blind to some of the parts of, the Amer- of American uh, history and tradition that is also there, but that is not talked about in American exceptionalism, which I will get back to. Uh, others like uh, Ruggie, for instance, in his famous article, The Pastest Prologue, talks about how Amer- liberalism as, an, as a political ideology sort of explains post-war multilateralism, which I think um, I wrote uh, about this in my book and I, I find it problematic for, for many reasons. Um, One being that this ideology of liberalism was quite constant through American history, but something apparently in Ruggie's analysis changed with World War II. Uh, So a constant can't really explain a change. But as I write in my book, um, if you don't, if you sort of widen your lens a little bit and look at the role that the belief in liberalism as a political ideology plays as a part in this idea that the United States is exceptional and morally superior, things make a little bit more sense. Um, and if we can talk about this more in the Q&A, but in my book, I talk about how Ruggy um, uh, is wrong for many reasons, one being that the US didn't really turn multilateral after World War II, it continued to sort of unilateral internationalism, but we can talk about that later. All right, so what's the utility of all of this? Um, we think that it can be helpful um, to use American exceptionalism when you analyze US foreign policy, because it can actually help you understand some very specific consequences. And we have two specific examples in the paper, although both of them are from the George W. Bush administration, which I think we uh, should diversify our examples. But the first example, which you find um, throughout American history, and another obvious example is the Vietnam War, but is this issue of solipsism, right? This quality of being self-centered. So we talk about in the paper how sort of sustained and widespread belief in your own superiority uh, will not unnaturally lead to solipsism you're you're kind of sort of um it's going to be difficult for you to understand how other people think and feel and that they might not see the world as you do and in fact Hartz actually wrote about that in his book and the um example we use is the policy planning for the iraq invasion um, and how you have a lot of examples from very prominent U.S. Uh, policymakers, makers um, sounding astoundingly naive about what the situation would be in Iraq as the U.S. invaded, which I don't think is actually that helpful maybe to think about as naivete but as a really deep belief in American exceptionalism and that of course, of course, Iraq is gonna want us to help them. Of course, they're gonna greet us as liberators once we show up because we are the United States of America. Uh, and it's a, sort of, um, it's a sort of fascinating way of, of, of looking at the world um, that I think you find again and again in American history Uh, And the Iraq war is one such example, but there are others. Uh, Another issue would be how you conduct public diplomacy, right? Again, we we lean on the Bush administration, but we can think of other examples where um, the way to conduct public diplomacy is not to necessarily talk about issues or or argue the facts, but to simply uh, communicate American exceptionalism. Our values are the best, Be more like us and everything will work out fine. Um, Obviously the, um, the example with Karen Hughes uh, traveling the Middle East after uh, the Bush administration and the war on terror was taking a deep dive in in the ratings around the world is, is maybe a, a sort of extreme example, but it is interesting that the Bush administration thought that this would be a good way of winning hearts and minds in the Middle East. Um, and in fact, I think not just the public, the public uh, diplomacy, um, in relationship with the war on terror, but the Bush administration's or the president Bush's explanation for why 9-11 happened in the first place, the way that he talked about how this could possibly have happened to the United States and that it was that the United States was attacked because of who it was, because of what kind of country it was, because of its beliefs and values, not because of its foreign policies, not because of actions the United States had taken. That in itself, I think, spoke volumes about what this kind of belief in American exceptionalism, how it can shape your, your worldview and how you evaluate um, important events in international relation. All right, so I think I have a few minutes left. So I'm gonna uh, end by discussing why this is still relevant. So I can imagine that some of you maybe are thinking about the current president and how he uh, thinks about uh, American exceptionalism And we can talk about more about that in the Q&A if you guys are interested. But lest anyone thinks that American exceptionalism is dead and it's irrelevant, um, I recently read a very interesting article in Foreign Affairs by uh, Ben Rhodes, former foreign policy advisor to Obama, who used to uh, accuse the Washington foreign policy elites of being the blob. But I think he just joined the blob because he wrote an article in foreign affairs, which is centered around and built on the assumptions of American exceptionalism, where Ben Rhodes argues that a Joe Biden administration must rebuild the city on a hill, and that Democrats must make the case for a distinct form of American exceptionalism in which right makes might. Because Uh, the United States capacity to correct its imperfections at home, its identity as a multicultural democracy that welcomes immigrants, its adherence to the rule of law, and its concern for the inherent dignity of people everywhere are what give the country a moral claim to leadership. So I'm thinking uh, these assumptions of American exceptionalism and the assumptions, the implications it has for U.S. foreign policy Uh, are still quite relevant, still alive and well, and they can have other important uh, implications as well. Uh, So I think that looking at American exceptionalism this way is also very important uh, in nationalism studies, which are again very relevant for foreign policy. So I recently wrote an article about this for Global Affairs uh, in the spring, where I argue that American exceptionalism and those three ideas that I talked about in the beginning are kind of the American version of civic nationalism, right? Nationalism built on ideas and ideals, uh, as opposed to ascriptive or ethnic, um, or religious characteristics. But we know that in the United States, there's also a strong tradition of ethnic nationalism. And I think one of the interesting things, uh, both for domestic and foreign policy, is that American exceptionalism as civic nationalism has been the dominant narrative about the United States. But the dominant tradition for large parts of American history was probably ethnic nationalism, originally understood as white supremacy, and then it changes a little bit um, throughout history, but we're sort of back there again. Um, And I think one of the reasons looking at American exceptionalism is relevant um, both for domestic and foreign policy is because this very widespread consistent belief in American exceptionalism has, I think, bred a blind spot to the darker tradition, uh, both domestically and foreign that the United States has also represented. And I think understanding how these two um, sides of American national identity or these two kinds of nationalism and how they interact is important to understanding Trump era form policy, which I wrote about in Texas National Security Review last winter. Finally, I wonder if understanding American exceptionalism and how it works in American society is important for uh, democratic backsliding. Could this belief in American superiority and this belief in the rise and rise trajectory of American history Um, hinder um, U.S. ability to deal with its own internal crises? Um, And the current example would be, is there a sense that in the current democratic backsliding that the United States is experiencing, is the belief in American exceptionalism an actual hinder in trying to deal with what's actually going on? And I thought of that um, because I started talking with historian Joanne Freeman on Twitter uh, about this um, because she had the same idea. She had this idea that this blind faith in American exceptionalism could be lulling people into a fake sense of rise and rise rather than rise and fall. Um, So I do think it's still relevant. But in any case, what I need you guys to do is help me out how we should reframe our article and, you know, who we should be attacking. I mean, talking to.
2: Thank you.
3: Wow,
0: thank you, Hilda, that's terrific. Um, uh, Lots to chew on. And um, of course, uh, the question queue has uh, already taken off. Um, I would like... So the tr- question queue is taken off with faculty and postdocs and i would love to start the semester with a st- with a student um uh if i could so i will i would if some student right now raises a hand i'll, I'll uh, i'd love to jump the queue to call on you but if not i will try to draw you out later remember again Use the participant function to raise hand to get on the main queue or to give a thumbs up during a question if you want to ask a two finger. Um, all right, Catherine Heiser. Excellent. Got a student.
2: Hi there. Um, thank you for giving this talk. It was really interesting to listen to. Um, and then at the end, I just had a Question that popped into mind about how American exceptionalism would impact the ideas of isolationism or internationalism, and sort of how the American people would see themselves on the world stage.
1: Should I answer immediately?
0: Yes. Yeah, sure. That's our usual pattern.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, I'm so glad you asked that question because my first book is about that. <laughs> Um, Basically, my argument would be that um, (laughs) one of the sort of tropes about U.S. foreign policy history um, that I think has been fed by this belief in American exceptionalism is that there's a virtuous version of American exceptionalism where the United States stays away from the world and is isolationist in its foreign policy and is merely an example to the world, Mm right? Right sort of the exemplary version of American exceptionalism, which if you ask historians of US foreign policy, never was a thing. The US has always been very, very active from the very, very beginning, uh, expanding, taking over territory, fighting wars, uh, killing indigenous peoples, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think um, the way that this belief in the United States as a superior nation has worked uh, in in American history is to actually propel a rather uh, active Uh, An internationalist foreign policy that, to a large extent, has been quite unilateral. uh, Because when you are exceptional, you don't really want other people dictating to you what you should be doing, Um, which I think you see a lot of, and especially in Woodrow Wilson's attempt at order making, uh, and something that came to fruition with with, uh, FDR uh, and how the UN was set up, uh, which was a lot um, less idealistic and multilateral than I think many people assume. Um, But I think also, if I may say this, because I don't say this enough, we need to stop using the term isolationism is a terrible term, it is very misleading, uh, and not a real use foreign product tradition, possibly with the exception of two years in the 30s. And I don't think it helps us understand anything. That's not critiquing you, by the way, Catherine, I'm saying in general, let's not use the term isolationism.
2: What term would you use instead, then?
1: Um, I think it's more helpful to use to look at various kinds of internationalism. Uh, has you know, has the U.S. been more multilateral or more unilateral? What forms of um, uh, interactions has the U.S. engaged in? Um, and it's not because if you use isolation, you're kind of, um, it's kind of a straw man because it's really hard to be isolationist. It's actually a very strict uh, definition. And so... I think it's more helpful to think of different ways of engaging with the world, unless you're a hermit nation, which the US never was. Thank you.
0: Great. Um, So uh, for our next question, let's uh, unleash Mike Dash.
1: Oh, no, that sounds terrible.
0: Right? I can't hear him. Yeah, I can't either. Can you there hear we me? Go. Yes. Try again, Mike. Can
4: you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I, I said Mike Dash, student of life. I don't know why I got bumped on the queue, but I'll take that up with our uh, extinguished uh, moderator. Um, Hilda, thanks for the paper. It was uh, really engaging so engaging that I went back and read the original Hughes piece that you were uh, uh, responding to. Um, and my first comment, I think, is going to be pushing against an open door. The Hughes piece is terrible. Uh, I don't know why you were uh, even really um, you know, bothering with that. Uh, it seems to me that where it seems you're uh, you know, inclined to go now, Uh, is a a much better and much more uh, interesting paper. I mean, we we stipulate, and I think the evidence is pretty clear, whether we're an exceptional country in everybody else's uh, eyes. uh, Most of us believe that we are. And so you take that and stipulate it um, and then ask uh, two questions. You know, one is what best explains that? Um, And two, if you think it's a problem, and you do, and uh, I agree, uh, what's the best way to, uh, uh, you know, to ensure that our belief does not, you know, lead us um, into uh, making the sort of mistakes that we've made over the the past 25 years? And I think your key target here is realism. Um, Critical theory I mean, if Hughes is a, any, um, you know, representative uh, of that critique, it's not even worth responding. Uh, I think the, uh, and this is going to sound self-interested because, you know, I'm a member of the, uh, of the tribe, but I think the far more serious, uh, you know, uh, both analysis uh, of, uh, you know, the downsides of American exceptionalism Um, and also an alternative way to deal with it uh, comes from realists going back you know all the way to uh, you know Morgenthau um, in uh, Scientific Man and Power Politics but you know coming up uh, through a lot of the other literature um, that you uh, that you mentioned. Now What I'm still puzzled about, I was puzzled in your paper when you were still shadow boxing with Hughes, um, and I'm still puzzled about it now that you're uh, setting your sights uh, on realism, is uh, exactly uh, what the social constructivist uh, view brings to the table. Now, both you and Hughes sort of glom on to the uh, critiques Uh, of Louis Hartz that, um, you know, the American tradition contained multiple traditions and and sort of say then, you know, that the realist appropriation of Hartz or Hartz-like arguments can't be right. I I don't think that's a very compelling argument because if Roger Smith were here, he would tell you that the uh, multiple traditions argument doesn't mean uh, that the liberal tradition wasn't sort of the default tradition. Uh, he just says that, you know, there were other traditions um, out there. Um, and secondly, if you accept that, and if you think that these other traditions uh, somehow uh, might uh, be the, the, pro- the solution to the problem of American exceptionalism, how does social constructivism help us identify those other traditions um, and what are they? Um, And it seems to me that a a paper that contrasted uh, the realist uh, argument that the problem is liberalism, that it leads to exceptionalism and that the return or the embrace uh, of realism is is the solution to that. If you could clearly pose the social constructivist view as an alternative uh, on those counts, that would be uh, a very interesting paper. And certainly one, in my humble opinion, but again, take it with a grain of salt, uh, that would be more worthy of your efforts than you know trying to uh, straighten out the critical theorists who I think are hopeless.
1: Thank you so much. That was much nicer than I feared what you were going to say. <laughs> Um, what did I really,
4: you think I was going to say,
1: um, don't
4: get him started. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: wrong about everything. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, uh, I really appreciate the, those comments and that's kind of, our, that's our search mission right now because what, what, when we're, so it's too easy to tackle the critical theory critique, right? Because it's, Unless you're a diehard critical theorist, I'm not sure it has much purchase. Um, and it's more interesting, I think, like you say, um, to spar with. I don't think only you have to only spar with realists. I think there are liberal and constructivist scholars we can also um, spar with. I think based on what we've done before, we feel like there is a particular contribution by looking at American exceptionalism as a kind of identity or a narrative that then shapes how, for instance, the national interest is defined, um, shapes how you view your relationship with the rest of the world. And it allows you to sort of get around more simplistic analyses, like the Bush administration was naive, or um, it's only about power, all these things. I just think it adds a layer of understanding an historical context that is important. Well, can, can I push you on that, Hilda? Because, yes.
4: you know, sort of the, um, the tribe's view is the problem with the United States um, since the end of the Cold War is we've got too much power um, and we can do any dumb thing that we want to do. Um, and so we default uh, to this uh, exceptionalist, Uh, worldview um, that, you know, in a more constrained situation, uh, we likely uh, would not have uh, allowed ourselves to become captive of. And and so, you know, we have a simple argument for, you know, the Iraq war, Uh, too much power um, and uh, no check on on sort of the uh, dominant narrative. What is the constructivist alternative bring to the table uh, that's superior to that argument?
2: Well,
1: I think the way that I uh, understand um, the sort of realist story, right, or people who argue for isolationism, for example, is that after the Cold War is over, when there's no longer another great power to contend with, the US could. in the isolationist story revert back, right there's no power drawing it out into the world, but that didn't happen, nor did it nor did the United States then revert to sort of um, necessarily pursuing let's say selfish material causes right it It expanded um, its agenda in the world in a way that I think uh, if you look at it from the lens of American exceptionalism it makes perfect sense. It's just trying to make the world into its own image, which I think uh, in certain respects, it was also trying to do earlier, but with more constraints. Right. But it's not, I'm not, I don't think this is not a simple story of sort of power or material factors versus ideas. Um, I think they go together and I think they, Uh, condition each other. But I think you can't have the one explanation without the other. Um, But
4: that's the argument a lot of us are making. It's power plus Louis Hartz. So either we've become constructivists and, you know, we're like Mollier's bourgeois, uh, or there is a different argument out there. And that's what I'm trying to, uh, you know, clarify in my own mind.
1: Yes, and I think so I do think that our one of our points is that american this i this idea of American exceptionalism becomes um, it can lead to very specific consequences uh, what we're trying to develop in our our example of of solipsism um, but I'm not. we're still sort of searching for our exact sort of framing and uh, and exactly who we want to be in in discussion with. Um, Because it's not, I would not agree, maybe naturally coming from Norway, with the sort of Walt and Merzheimers of the world that uh, American exceptionalism only leads to tragedy in international relations and that the U.S. need to uh, retrench. I think there is it's more nuanced than that it can be it can be a force for good um in fact but it so easily um loses control of itself and it doesn't necessarily breed good um policy or public policy in a very smart way
0: so and, yeah sorry i didn't mean to cut you off
1: no, and I would. I would love to talk more about this with with Professor Dash. Uh, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, we have to move on.
0: Right. We do. We have several other people on the list, and people can freely get on the list uh, for sure. Um, uh, you know, it strikes me that um, you're now fighting with yourself, Hilda, about whether you want to have a normative or a or a descript a positive yeah. agenda in your paper, right? Like now saying, I think American exceptionalism could be, the United States could do something good in the world if we weren't so prone to this defective social construction that we have, you know, I don't want to be an advocate of restraint. Um, that's an advocacy position, which might make sense, but that's very different from what you're saying before, which is that yeah. America has this warped, constructed idea of American exceptionalism that just keeps screwing us up because that seems just like Mike's IS article that he was riffing off of in that um,
1: interchange. Right, Um, so I'm not, so this is again, why uh, discussions of American exceptionalism usually always end up in the the normative uh, discussion, but it's not, I think we are more interested in the first part, which is explaining how what this is, how to understand it, how it can add layers of understanding to analyzing U.S. foreign policy. It's right. not, uh, we're not looking to write a policy paper ending with the U.S. should do X, Y, and Z and then end tragedies in international relations. That's not really what we're trying to do or, or the point, but it easily tips into that in these discussions.
0: But then I think, and I'm just gonna to go to the list right after this, But the, um, but I think then, you are not distinguishing yourself from the realists. You know, Mike is saying, you know, you're making the same criticism that realists are making about uh, American foreign policy now, which is that, you know, given power, we have no check on the United States anymore. The United States caves into all this bad American exceptionalism, the Louis Hart story. And you're after like, now you're not tangling with them. You are them. And uh, or you were telling Mike that he's not actually a realist, he's a constructivist. And, I'm, you know, that's an interesting way to have this conversation. Joe Parent.
5: Unmuted, got me, okay.
1: Hey Hilda. Hi, it's so nice to see you again.
5: Good to see you again. Um, Let's just eat our vegetables first, and uh, uh, I think, Mike, you need to write, like, you need to settle on what your dependent variable is so we can know what we're even arguing about.
6: Yeah. Um, We also
5: need a way to sort of disentangle whatever the factors you think are important, and in this case, ideational ones, because it's not clear what's cause and what's effect here, and I think that's what Mike's trying to say. Mm -hmm. On to dessert. I think the fun thing I want to hear you talk about um, is American unexceptionalism. So... I wanna hear your story about why it was that American unexceptionalism, which got there first in the form of William Bradford in 1620 and got there better in the shape of George Washington in 17, whatever, 96, didn't win. That's my question.
1: I think when you study Uh, colonial history and the founding and ideas of this new nation, you find ideas of exceptionalism everywhere. Uh, And it doesn't mean that there weren't other traditions. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other traditions today. It just means that it keeps winning out. And I think that one of the reasons that it got a good start, head start of other traditions is that it sort of built on British exceptionalism uh, and this sort of civilizational ideal uh, of the white man civilizing the new world. Um, And I don't, why didn't win? Well, what is this other tradition? And why should it have won?
5: Um, well, I, I think it depends on the author. In the Bradford case, right, it's that, you know, the the pilgrims got here and they were all fallen and they realized that mankind has fallen and we're all in the same boat. We're all super unexceptional in this. And Arch Lessinger has that piece where he talks about American unexceptionalism over time um, that has religious roots, but also political roots. And George Washington says what makes us exceptional insofar as we are exceptional is that we realize that we're so ordinary and we have to have institutions to check how ordinary we are. And that's why, that's how we'll attain things, right? So some people have it in a religious or spiritual grounding and other people have it in a political or social grounding. Um, And they sometimes win, right? They're sometimes in charge and they're often not, right? But the Mike point of view is it's correlated with power and the constructor's point of view is it's a battle of ideas out there that's flip-flopping uncorrelated with power and i think that's where you could add value is talking about here are the baseline trends and then here's the actual on the ground tactics between the, the sides
1: yeah and i don't think it's unrelated to power it it's, right. this is this is i that. mean yeah the united states yeah. is 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 becoming a rising power as it's as, as its nation building itself And so there are different images out there and ideas out there. But what I, in my book, I I write about how, I do write quite a bit about the Pilgrims and the Puritans and and how um, there are various bits and pieces out there to build on when the United States is founded. It's not, for instance, that the Puritans are a big, powerful, you know, group. They, it doesn't go so well with them, but they become a really important piece in the identity puzzle that you can then draw on later. And, and sort of pull up as like the these original founders before there was the United States um, for various reasons. But I think if you're if you're ex, if you're an expanding nation that is taking over territory from other peoples, um, it is really helpful to think of yourself as doing it for good reasons for being a superior people with a superior ideology uh, with a civilizational mission, um, and. I, but there are, it doesn't come from anything. I think it builds on, on, on ideas of British, like British exceptionalism. I think it builds on ideas of being better than the other uh, European empires in the new world. Um, and then it kind of builds step by step. Um, but it's not, my, our point is not that, uh, and the critical theorists are right on this, our point is not that there's one identity of American exceptionalism from 1620 until today. And it's the same. And it's that's not that's not the point at all, because uh, that only simplifies the discussion. There are other traditions and there are also other variances of looking at why the United why the United States is exceptional. And so when I'm I am aware that when I'm talking about American exceptionalism, it is also a concept that is that changes a little bit through history and that is influenced by different things and that is uh, um, challenged by other other traditions as well um, just so that to be clear about that I'm not trying to, to be to simplify too much but I really uh, like your point Joe uh, not surprisingly you all have very good points that you are making
0: <laughs> well that's good to hear um, uh, so uh, why don't we go to a, a former domer now Morgenthau fellow uh, Tyler Bowen
3: uh, Can everyone hear me? Yep. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, listening in on this talk. Um, I had a a question, um, which is that, or at least something that, like, in terms of helping you, helping your framing. Uh, When I was reading the paper, I was wondering, it's like, does American exceptionalism make United States act differently than other states would, or does it just or does it explain like the particular content of an action that the United States would take? And so by that I mean on your solipsism point, it I was I thought back to Jervis's work on misperception. And I was like, well, you know, any decision makers in any state have a problem accessing the viewpoints of decision makers in other states. That's not necessarily a problem uh, of you know, isolated to American policymakers, it may explain the content of that partic- of their particular misunderstandings, but it doesn't. Es- but like, it's not just, it's not that they are unique in misunderstanding. Um, and then, yeah, there's just, it would, I think it'd be useful for you to uh, have, do some work to show, it's like, well, or, you know, take up, I guess, take a, take a particular dependent variable like war it's like, well, does American exceptionalism make America you know more or less likely to go to war in a particular instance? Or maybe it's about as likely to go to war, but it explains to particular justifications. Only, only with the lens of American exceptionalism can you understand why they put forth this liberation rhetoric uh in a conflict like World War One or something like that. Um or it might explain objectives for war, uh where other other uh, perspectives don't, and that would still be important to know. Um, particularly because it can it as a better you can then better explain change and trajectories within U.S. foreign policy. But um, yeah, I just wanted to get your sense on what what you think in terms of this framing of trying to say like uh, what whether or not you think what now that I spelled it out like do you think that American exceptionalism is makes produces like different behaviors from the United States than say other another state would, or does it just produce, say, different justifications for similar actions?
1: Well, I don't do comparative work, so I don't know the answer to your question, but I really like the way you are trying to help me frame the paper because I am not we're not, I don't we're not that interested in trying to do predictive work or any, or anything like that, what we, what we want to do, I think, is explain the content, like how you framed it now. Um, and I think that that in itself is a valuable contribution. But it wouldn't be um, because of American exceptionalism we can say that the US will do this, this, and that uh, in the future. Uh, I don't think that's what we're trying to do. I don't think that's necessarily what we, need, what we should do. Um, I'm more interested in adding and uh, helping analyze the content uh, of American foreign policy and how, how the U.S. gets there. It's a way of looking at domestic factors that influence U.S. foreign policy that aren't material. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's where we want to go, although I can't an- a- answer for my co-author. But yeah, so I, I, like, I like the way that you set that up. That was helpful to me.
0: Excellent. Um, so, uh, Ben
7: Dennison is next up. Great. Thank you so much, Ellie, for the great paper. Um, I have so many thoughts, but I'm going to limit myself uh, just to two quick ones. Uh, the first one is I think, kind of building off the last, last point, maybe to help with framing and this discussion, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts either in the paper or now, kind of. Is there like generic hegemonic exceptionalism, or is this like an only a story of American exceptionalism? Like can you go back to like the Holy Roman Empire and places where like in like divine right? Can you can you like, have a story of exceptionalism that is outside the American context? And if so, then is like what does that say about power and ideas versus uh, in kind of the weighting of the two factors? Um, You know, is exceptionalism unique to the US or is it available to anybody who becomes a hegemon in the international system? Um, That was one thought I had while reading. And then the second thought I had would be um, this is much more narrow. And I think um, the Iraq example, I think that the first one you give, uh, I'm kind of predisposed to disagree with this just given my own writing. Um, But I think you might want to, given the critiques about, Uh, exceptionalism, I think that might not be the most helpful example going forward uh, in your case, given all the different uh, ways people interpret a lot of those same quotes that you give about like that the policymakers are making. Um, And I think it's much more interesting, in my own opinion, like if you're still worried about this, what you call the historical argument um, at all, going back to like the pre-1945 period and seeing kind of, I mean, you have Woodrow Wilson in 1914 invading Mexico because they refused to give a 21-gun salute to the flag. Uh, I mean, that's like, to me, like, when you want to look for American exceptionalism, like that's like a just much more clear cut case. And I think you can mine those for more interesting and more clear cut uh, examples. Whereas instead, you know, I wrote all these notes about like, this assumes, you know, how you overcome uncertainty and information, like there's always other arguments about Iraq I can make that if you use different examples, you just completely uh, will breeze past. Um, Maybe you're predisposed to have that argument and you, you know, you'd like to kind of I just think you're picking a fight with reviewers you might not necessarily want to.
1: This is the kind of feedback I need. How to avoid reviewers that are angry at you. Um, yes, exactly. Um, so the first exam- first question, is there generic hegemonic exceptionalism or is there something different about youth exceptionalism? So Americans always want to ask me if there's something exceptional about American exceptionalism. <laughs> but the thing is, um, what I find in my research and then what other people who've researched American exceptionalism find is that the ideas of exceptionalism are there way before the United States is powerful. And I I think that is an important part of the story. Uh, And I'm actually, there's a sort of tendency to treat the United States as a great power long before it is a great power, uh, sort of reading things back into, into American history. I think the, the ambitions and the goals and the ideas and the uh, ideals are there before the United States has any power uh, to execute any of this, but whether it's, then more of a hegemonic kind of exceptionalism as the United States becomes powerful. Again, I don't do comparative work. I only, I'm an Americanist, so I don't know. But I think it is valuable in itself to, to dig into and analyze the American form of, of exceptionalism in that since, simply because the United States is the most powerful country and it's helpful to understand what makes it tick. Uh, and I agree with you about pre-1945 examples. There's no reason to have uh, two examples from the George W. Bush administration. There's so much else we can, we can, it's a lazy, this was a, a lazy choice early in our paper writing that we never went back to, to fix.
0: Great. Uh, great. Um, so uh, we have, we had four and we're down to three and I'm disappointed because we lost a, a graduate student questioner. So I hope she'll come back. But um, there's 23 minutes left, and um, we're going to at least do these three. I'm hoping at least four, maybe more. So feel free to get on the queue. But uh, Fritz Heinsen. Uh Good afternoon. Or
6: good evening. I'm sorry. It's uh, good evening. And uh, very much enjoyed your paper. Uh, I had made a lot of notes. I, I'm going to whip through some of these points very quickly because... Um, two people or several people have already uh, commented in a similar manner. So the first one is, who is your audience? I find that you've written in a, in a way that you could, with minor tweaks, this could be for policymakers, members of the incoming administration, uh, informed citizens, um, and for example, um, if it's informed citizens. Do people, do Americans, even realize they're sort of in this bubble? There's a, or I think of at, at times American exceptionalism as possibly a bubble. There, it, there, it's so ingrained they may not even really be aware as to how much that affects foreign policy or, or uh, the the foreign policy dynamic. Um, so that's that's one thing is, and my comments would very much differ depending on who your who your audience is, but in general, I think you could go in multiple directions uh, on it. Um, Mike Dash really was much more caustic than even I probably would be. I'd probably be a little more circumspect, but he's right on the Hughes point. Wow. Uh, I I was underwhelmed by Hughes's argument. Um, If you go into old post offices or old restaurants, you see pictures, paintings on walls of the American exception or American exceptionalism, and idyllic, and so on. Uh, this has been around so long. Um, wow, if he wants to identify it with 45 and beyond, well, that's sad. Um, the realists, I think, are an interesting part of this argument, obviously. And it, I, I'm not sure, though, as to set them up, well, re- keep Hughes in the article it, it, because there are a lot of people I find who think like Hughes. So he should be in it. They think very much history for the United States begins in 1945. They forget that actually it's been around longer, uh, way too contemporary, but, um, the realists they there, there'll be sort of a good foil for what you're doing. But again, much of it is for the, the realists, many of the realists, I, studied under many of Morgenthau's students and, and they, they may lament it, but they're going to readily agree with this, that American exceptionalism exists. It just shouldn't, it shouldn't, but it's out there. Um, very quickly, I hear points or places where I think you might want to expand and, and, and move further with. Uh, on page 21, you make the quick reference to Michael Hunt and to Bill Brands. And I thought that was very, very interesting because there are types of exceptionalism, and there are margins to exceptionalism, and those are neat little notions to 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 work with. And I know Michael Hunt's work; you're probably drawing on his work from uh, North Carolina and Yale. Now, Bill Brands, that one sort of threw me a little because I've read a lot of his, and, and I'm reading the page proofs for his book coming out later this year, and I'm trying to think of where where exactly you're pulling from brands i mean i understand if you look at brands as work sort of in a totality where you're pulling from in a way but i'd almost want to see a little more personally from my interest where exactly or how exactly you're you're pulling from brands um but that, that whole notion of types of exceptionalism is is a key or, or is a significant part of, of i think what you're what you're uh, arguing here which then ties to page two and footnotes four and five because footnote four is on, is, we're back on the realists again. Who are you drawing from? Who are the realists that you're you're imagining you're in argument with or potentially in argument with and who are lamenting? Uh, and then footnote five is, oh, we're back to, okay, the exceptional, let's see, yes the exceptionalists that you're drawing on. And I thought the, the couple that you mentioned were good. And I like that footnote five, <laughs> only, I think, a little greater expansion to understanding uh, what you're building on or some of what you're building on or reacting against to within exceptionalist thought. Uh,
0: then... Fritz, um, yeah. I'm I'm conscious of the time. You might yep. want to send her an email with the detailed ones about particular footnotes. Okay. Maybe get to, done on I'm done on that.
6: People. Done yeah. that in the last. Okay. Oh, comparative exceptionalism. We've already discussed that. No. And examples. Yes. Woodrow Wilson, number numero uno problem with exceptionalism. Go with Wilson. And very good. That's it. Thank, thank you for letting me have my say.
1: And thank you Thanks for reading on. my footnotes. I very much appreciate that. And uh, the Bill Brands references from my co-author. And now I'm going to go and hound him about it and ask him what he means by that. So I love that because we got to be thorough here. Thank you so much.
0: Terrific. Um, uh, uh, I'm tempted to go to the student, but I'm, at this point, we're on, on track for the list. So Amitava.
8: Oh, Hi. Um, a very, very interesting talk. Um, uh, It's very stimulating. I'm I'm afraid that I'm not a IR person by training, but I am in the IR group. So um, I've read some of the text, but not the paper by Hughes. And I'm afraid I haven't even read your paper yet, but I plan to do it. I had two questions for you. One question is uh, one of framing it and you talked about how, um, how you were originally writing this as a response to a critical realist and then you were changing that uh, to some extent. I think a proper way to change it would be not to disting- distinguish between different schools of what you might call American IR but to say that essentially they're the same, uh, they're all talking about American power and how to maintain it, uh, by either by military expansionism or by, uh, sort of claiming to be liberals and, and trying to, uh, be, uh, the good guys in a liberal world order. Uh, so for example, the, the, the paper you mentioned, which talks about, um, right is might, uh, Works both ways, and it's like a uh, a cycle, right? And it's no longer clear which is which is right and which is which is right. Uh, so, um, so perhaps these petty uh, well, I would call it petty distinctions between realists and uh, liberals and American scholars generally, uh, who just assume that, of course, the whole whole thing is to keep American power, and what's the best way to do it? Um, so that's my one point. The second point is, is not just a question of, uh, is American exceptionalism exceptional? Historically, of course, there have been others, but to say why it seems to be something that's so widely discussed. And I would argue that you could look at uh, two things. Uh, one is that uh, American military power is is so overwhelming compared to what it was in the past uh, for any of the other powers. They didn't know much of the world. They didn't expand so much. Perhaps they overextended themselves. Uh, And also now that at least in academic discussions, you have the scope and the opportunities for many people to contest this idea, which probably didn't exist in the same way before, except in isolated independence movements or rebellions. Um, and, and And the final point is, shouldn't we also think about exceptionalism in different senses like uh, most of the uh, exceptionalism is based on uh, military power and conquest but i see some indian exceptionalism too uh, that that you find that oh we are really uh, sort of spiritual people and that makes us exceptional uh, that's just an example that i'm that i'm giving china is also exceptional in some ways about both India and China looking back into past history and the glory days and how that's going to come back too and so forth. So so I'm wondering if if the American exceptionalism is also the content of it is based on America's position now. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I think your point on, on India is that I, I don't at all think that it's exceptional for countries to think that they're exceptional. So I agree that you're going to find different content, different kinds of, of ideas about what makes different countries exceptional, uh, for sure. But I I don't think I agree that American scholars are all the same and that realists and and liberal scholars all agree that, um, the point is to, uh, maintain us power and and position. I think there's some realists who are very interested in retrenching, (laughs) but, uh, but thank you very much uh, for your comment.
8: If you could just say retrenchment, but for what purpose?
1: Definitely uh, not for 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 a liberal order. I think so. They no, would be not similar. for a
8: liberal order, but to maintain American hegemony in some sense.
0: No, nah, I don't think we care about hegemony.
8: <laughs> we care about
0: se- security and prosperity, right? To to make the United States a happy country. You know, leave us alone. Get, we'll get rich. Really. Um, okay. But uh, uh, but thanks. So. Um, Uh, We now have two students on the list, and so this is just a warning to Dan Lindley, who is next up, that there are two students, Dan Lindley. Two students, Dan Lindley.
9: Okay, I didn't know I was up that quickly, but hello, everybody. Um, I just want to complexify realism and idealism and note that a lot of realists would say ideas are power and are almost hard power. Um, And I'll go in increasing order of liberalism as I make points how that could happen. First of all, ideas, ideology, nationalism can help countries mobilize and therefore increase their military power. Second, I think there's elements of American exceptionalism that keep us in our alliances, for better or worse, Eugene might say. But it's true. I think you know the elements of us in Korea, we're helping democratize them. Our bases everywhere are force for good. So the overlap between realism and, American exceptionalism or ideology is, I think, less clear. I think uh, there are certainly literatures out there where ideas helped us win the Cold War. And that's a pretty close skate up to hard power right there. Military to military cooperation is tinged with elements of exceptionalism that we're trying to help spread our values, not just make other militaries more effective, but to have better civil military uh, relations and less proneness to coups. The Navy's ads about being a global force for good certainly conflates hard power with uh, good power. Um, and of course, you know there are counterarguments. This is all fluff. And finally, one might think about soft power as really skating the line between hard power and, and liberal ideas of what creates influence in the world. So I think there's a number of ways that complexify uh, the argument that realism is your foil. It just it depends on your realist and how you're going to measure power. And if you're going to make a, a claim for uh, liberalism and its success or realism and its success, I think soft power is a very complexifying term. And of course, measuring its effect, you know, realists would say it doesn't have much effect at all. Maybe that's the, the argument there. But I, I wish you luck sorting through all that. And I think there's a lot of complex issues that uh, you know, Mike suggesting it as a foil, um, it's a little bit more complex than that, I would suggest.
1: Thank you very much, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, I appreciate
0: it. Well, that was a striking echo. Um, at least I got a big echo, but uh, yeah, thanks. So um, that actually worked out great because we have plenty of time for my two students. So they're not my students, but the fact that I'm promoting student questions. So uh, uh, Aaron Connolly.
2: Great, now I'm unmuted. Uh, First, thank you for your presentation. I thought your paper was really interesting and I'm less entrenched in the theory. And the question that I had um, was more about how you, when you spoke about American identity and how it connects to uh, how we think of American exceptionalism. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how American exceptionalism has evolved over time as it relates to US domestic politics and the evolving US identity. And I'm thinking in particular of the 19th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, and if the legitimate participation and attempt to be more inclusive in the decision-making process affected how we perceived our own ability, our own level of exceptionalism. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think the idea of um, a, or a progressive narrative is very, very important. So it's um, the, the fact, if you can argue that the United States is, is becoming a more perfect union and that history moves in the line and it's progressing towards um, better results, then the American story uh, of American exceptionalism sort of makes sense and can sort of be validated, right, at, at most points because there is movement forward. There is something that, that makes the United States live up to its ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I wrote the two articles I wrote this past year um, on ethnic nationalism as a sort of foil of, of American exceptionalism is because I think the election of Donald Trump, uh, who doesn't believe in American exceptionalism and is uh, build is sort of bringing back this this tradition of, of ethnic nationalism makes us all question that progressive narrative um, and maybe opens our eyes a little bit to something that has always been there, but has been easy to sort of push away because the belief in this progressive narrative has been so strong, which is why I said in my presentation that I do believe there's a danger that this sort of belief in American exceptionalism breeds blind spots, uh, both domestically and and uh policy um sorry
2: yeah go ahead there's a quick follow-up on that but do you think that the efforts to, like be more inclusive has resulted in reduced exceptionalism what do you what do you mean by that like um the participation of people of color of women does that result in an increase are those measuring voices or is it something that just further amplifies exceptionalism
1: if you believe, I think if you believe in the progressive narrative, then it's proving the point that the United States is becoming what it's supposed to be, right? It is perfecting itself. Uh, It's proof, the proof is in the pudding. The more people that are, you uh, allow to participate, the more perfect the United States is becoming. Um, If I'm understanding your question correctly, that would be my interpretation. But then there's another and you know also speaking to to Joseph's question about what what about these other traditions um I think Donald Trump represents a tradition that we sort of last saw in in the America first organization and the 20s and 30s and 40s um that is much more of an ethnic kind of of nationalism that maybe people thought was were was just dead uh Mm -hmm. but in fact isn't um and um well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't have a solution for you. Yeah, thing, um, but yeah. I but I do think that the fact that Donald Trump doesn't have this this doesn't buy into American exceptionalism has um, uh, consequences for his foreign policy, which is what I wrote about in my last two two articles.
0: Um. So, I think that was a totally interesting conversation. Sparked a million questions for me, but um. Uh, uh, Kate McLaughlin has been patient. So she is on the list.
2: Yes, hi. Um, we spoke earlier in the Wise Endisk this talk, but thank you for your presentation. Um, this is kind of a similar question on progressive narratives, but I was just curious as to if you see the American exceptionalism narrative changing given what's currently happening with the widespread protests and calls for reform uh, throughout the country or if the blind spot that you mentioned earlier will remain indefinitely.
1: So um, the Gallup poll I referenced at the beginning um, shows that Democrats and Republicans believe equally in American exceptionalism and that it should has implications for U.S. foreign policy, which is not always the case. And I think that's a reaction to Donald Trump. I think we see that Democrats are becoming much more um, Positively inclined towards American leadership internationally, um, because Donald Trump uh, is 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 trying to reverse it. Um, so you're actually, <laughs> I think you're seeing some sort of interesting uh, counter reactions and 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 backlashes, um, if we're if we're talking about foreign policy and and how. Um, people who don't like Donald Trump perceive what he's doing to U.S. foreign policy and America's standing in the world and the kind of values that he's representing, which they don't, I think, recognize uh, as the typical American story of why the United States acts in the world. But then you said something, say the last part of your your question again.
2: About three minutes um, to midnight here, but I'm still awake. If the the blind spot that you mentioned earlier will remain indefinitely. I think that was the second part. Well, I think so.
1: I mean, I do think that the election of Donald Trump has opened many people's eyes. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people are are looking the other way anymore. And that's what you're seeing with Black Lives Matter. And, and the fact that it has such an incredible support in the American population this summer, a majority of Americans support Black Lives Matter. That's certainly historic. Um, but I don't really have an answer for you. I can't look into the future. Um, but it seems to me um, that there is a sort of reckoning with, with America's traditions and and various identities right now, which whenever that is resolved, I think will have implications for how future uh, US grant strategy is formulated and executed. Great. Thank you.
0: Um, Well, I mean, that was terrific and interesting. And I hope the questions helped you, Hilda. Um, Two minutes, I'm just going to ask a snippet because I've been, you know, bottling it up. And anyway, so um, maybe we can just exit in the last uh, teeny bit of your talk with a little more um, maybe related to your Texas National Security Review article, which is totally interesting, about Trump. So it seems to me that you're trying to argue two things about where we are today. One is that Trump doesn't believe in American exceptionalism, which makes him sound like an old fashioned realist, right? That um, all states are the same, right? No one's morally superior to anybody else. But you're also trying to argue that Trump believes in, uh, or is influenced by this ethnic nationalism, white supremacist vision of we are better than everyone else because we have this, ethnic uh, uh, circumstance. And so is Trump's just a different American exceptionalism, not the liberal one, or is Trump really all states are the same? We might as well just be a billiard ball. We're just more powerful than everybody else. You have one minute.
1: <laughs> I I mean, if we're going to, I don't think using the term exceptionalist I think it loses its meaning if you use it about Donald Trump if it 's supposed to be about ideas and ideals uh, rooted in enlightenment, liberalism blah 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 all that stuff i don 't see why you would use it on, on Donald Trump just because he can rank order nations based on their material wealth and and military prowess and their level of whiteness i don 't think that makes him an exceptionalist um, and I think he can he can worry about you know trade deals with China, the size of the American military and the color of the skin of the American demographic uh, all in one package. I don't think they they go against each other.
0: But, But then you don't believe that every other country can have its own exceptionalism, right? They believe they're exceptional, but you just don't think they're exceptional, right? The way the United States is exceptional because we've got the liberalism, then you're Louis Hartz, right? That liberalism is the core of what makes America exceptional, not just some belief that we're different and superior because otherwise Trump could believe that we're different and superior because we're more white. And that would still be American exceptionalism.
1: Yes, yes, the content is very important. The content is very important, absolutely. So
0: um hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Which you just don't want, anyway, that will conclude. It's wonderful that the moderator gets the last word. Um, Can I I'm at sure least Hilda.
1: A Hartz? just call me Louisa Hartz then There
0: you go, Louisa Hartz or, or wheezy. Um, anyway, we will uh, uh I'm sure Hilda and I will have more chances to discuss this. I want to thank everyone. Uh, for participating in our first seminar of the year. I think it was uh, terrific. It was a very enlightening discussion. I think we gave Hilda some good comments and she gave us a lot of really interesting enlightenment. So this is exactly what we want. Please come back in three weeks for the next one with Dan Byman and all through the semester. Um, uh, Thank you all and have a great night.
6: Follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is
7: licensed under SampleSwap.